Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. Our guest today is Frank Löffler from the University of Jena in Germany. At the time of recording, he's been a research associate at the Heinz Nixdorf Chair for Distributed Information Systems. And very shortly, he'll be leading an RSE team at his university. Frank is also a founding member and chair of the RSE Association in Germany. And here now, my conversation with Frank. Hello, Frank, and welcome to RSE Stories. I do apologize a little bit in advance for any potential background noise. We have people shredding trees outside my house. So there you go. To begin with, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about your story and how you became a research software engineer? I don't really know when I became a research software engineer. I think that has been a process. I was always uh, always interested in physics and computer science, even as a kid. So I always had these kind of two lanes I was going into. And after high school, I really had uh, the decision to make, do I want to study computer science or physics? I remember that I really sat down and mm. thought about that hard. Um, so at that time, the thought process was, well, if you do physics, you can com do computer science on the side because, you know, computers are cool. But if you do computer science, it's a bit harder to do physics on the side. So I went with physics and I did my master's in physics which at that point uh, was already going into the computer science side because it was on computer algebra systems and so on. And I was Linux admin at the uh, research institute at the side. That already gave me some direction, but really I started combining the research in physics with computer science stuff when I uh, did my PhD because there it was essentially all about HPC simulations. So you didn't only have to understand the physics and the problem you wanted to solve and from the science side, but you, you also had to know about HPC development and then programming, essentially. Now, looking back, that is likely the time when, when you, I could call myself an RSE because I was doing proper research, but it also had a lot of software engineering involved. Then I started doing even more stuff that you would call software engineering that was essentially taking care of releases of a large community framework in numerical relativity at that point. So that was even more towards, uh, let's say, the software engineering side. So that is definitely RSE at that point. That was my postdoc times, essentially. But this essentially came to one point when there was the, that one first RSE conference in Manchester in 2016. And we went there just because, when I say we, part of our research group, went there because we've been interested in, in that type of activity. But at that time, we didn't associate that with RSE. So I think at that point, we realized, well, what we do is actually RSE. So we are researchers in physics in that moment, but um, we are also RSEs. So if I again step back a little bit to your thesis and uh, the, the work that you did in physics that involved a lot of computation, what kind of physics was that like? Was it experimental physics or theoretical physics or uh, and what field? It was more theoretical physics in the sense that um, it didn't involve any um, real life experiments. 
it was numerical mm -hmm. relativity. So that means we did simulations of something like black holes and neutron stars. So that's stuff you cannot really do direct experiments with. You can observe what's out there, but that's about it. Um, but it's also experimental in a sense that a lot of what you do is actually like an experiment. I mean, you set up a simulation, mm -hmm. but then you measure stuff like you would in an experiment. So usually you, we had this um, picture of this research being in three parts, being experimental in a sense of we really observe these type of, uh, types of events out in the universe, but you also have theoretical parts, which is really sitting down with equations and the theory behind it. But then you also had um, simulations. That's kind of the third really important leg of that type of research. So it's kind of in between. So you mentioned your postdoc years. Yes, that, is, that was almost 10 years. Uh, and that was a really great time, I have to say. So um, first of all, from the type of environment, I had great colleagues. Uh, it was at a great center. Just to name it, it was the Center of Computation and Technology in uh, Louisiana in Baton Rouge. Uh, which is really a great location to do, especially work as an RZ because it's such an interdisciplinary center. And it's also a great location. I came to love and now miss the south of the US. When we talk about RZs, uh, the time when I essentially came connected, became connected with that con community. So I remember um, the WISP workshops, which I think mostly happened within the US, but then of course the first RZE conference or um, people at Force 11 and all that type of stuff happened when I was in the U.S., so I kind of connected to the U.S. as well in my mind. This is basically when you started to identify yourself as an RSE then during exactly. the time in Louisiana. Yes. You're currently at the University of Jena in East Germany. From Louisiana, how did you go back to Jena and uh, why did you make that move? That was uh, mostly because of private family um, issues. So in terms of Working, I was really um, satisfied and happy at uh, in, in Louisiana, but um, I have some kids, so they wanted to uh, see their grandparents, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that took the decision of to move back to um, Germany. Um, then, of course, the question is, where do you find work? I wanted to stay in academia, ideally, mm. but Germany is a lot smaller than the U.S. We had to find some way to combine myself and the work of my wife as well. Um, and then it turned out that Jena had that opportunity. So I'm now postdoc, so research assistant um, at a computer science chair here in Jena. And I work on semantic science related projects. So it's not really connected to physics, at least not directly. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't know what that is, so it's improving semantic search or exploration of large data sets. So it does have to do with uh, data. And we have some projects also um, with physics, but not only with physics. So semantic annotation of data. And um, there's one larger project I really like, which is a project which involves about 15 PhD students and a few postdocs that all work on their separate projects, but together on a larger project, which is artificial intelligence or machine learning based. So um, all, all around that common theme. So, so, so that setup is a bit like the small-scale version of the center I was working on bef at, before, that Center for Compet Computation and Technology. This one has a specific focus only, which is machine learning, but it's also a lot smaller, right? And a bigger center like um, the one in the US, you really had essentially all types of uh, scientific disciplines there. So you could learn from people analyzing texts from historic writers to um, physicists doing fancy simulations to all kinds of stuff. 
And when you say this project involves a number of PhD students, 15 PhD students in machine learning, could you describe the project a little bit more in detail? Yeah, also there you have a lot of different uh, projects in the sense that they are hosted um, at different chairs, also in different science disciplines. So you have some in medicine, you have some in uh, physics, you have some in computer science as well. They all have their separate PhD projects. Of course, they have to have their separate publications after all, but um, they regularly come together to um, talk about machine learning as tool, to talk about their experiences, to exchange uh, knowledge and um, help each other if they're possible. So that brings together not only the different disciplines, but also brings together more the theoretical people. And I think that's really important and, and really interesting. I think what is interesting, if I may follow up on this is that the role of RSE in this particular instance seems to bring different disciplines together. It's almost like bridging the gap between what people do in physics and what people do in linguistics or semantic text analysis. Would you see that in a similar way? And do you think that the role of RSE is kind of bridging the gaps and Yes, uh, improving so interdisciplinary research. Definitely, RSEs are doing that. But usually, you only see or mainly see um, the connections RSE make between essentially computer science and whatever other field of science they happen to work in. So once you have RSEs meeting other RSEs, then you can have also interactions between different other disciplines which are not computer science, and that is also what's happening here. Yes, and that is also really helpful. Talking about RSEs, I would like to talk a bit about the German RSE Association, which I believe uh, the idea came from an RSE conference in Manchester in 2016. Is that correct? And how did it get from? The, how did it go from there? Yes, so that was that one conference I mentioned earlier. So that was, I think, the first RSE conference ever. I don't know how many people met there, but it must have been also like two or three hundred. And I was in the US at the moment at that time. So I was visiting from the US, but I also met other German people there. In particular, I met uh, Martin Hamish and uh, Stefan Druskat there. We thought, well, that is nice that they actually have something like that in the UK, but I haven't ever heard about something like that in Germany. Wouldn't it be nice to have a German community about that idea as well? But I didn't stop there. So Of course, everyone just uh, traveled back, but uh, we set up things like Slack channel and an email list, web page eventually. Um, we got, got our own domains. We made ourselves a name, so to say. Um, so the community from then on grew pretty fast in a sense that after about two years, we actually formed an official entity. Because that really helps if you um, want to, well, not if you only want to have money, but also if you want to have just recognition of uh, the type, yeah. the group of people. And if you are in Germany, the, in, in Germany, the one type of entity you can easily create, and that is really common as well, is called Verein or Association. We created that Association for Research Software in Germany, or short, the ERSE, after the UK RSE. So that was uh, end of 2018. So that was two years after the conference, roughly. So which is, I think, pretty fast. It is easy to create and find. You essentially only need seven people that um, come together and write down one document. But we, it was a bit more work because we wanted to involve the whole community in the statutes of that entity. I, I think that I remember that from the time I lived in Germany, I set up a Verein as well, an association. And so it's, I mean, the setup procedure is fairly 
straightforward. But I think it's the building of the community that's the main effort and the main work. In addition, we also wanted to be a charitable association. So that means you have to put in more work into what you can actually or should write into those statues. We made that work essentially before we actually formed the association not to have problems later on. We are also a charitable by now. So it took some time after having the association, but it was less than a year. And I think we beat the UK RSE association on that. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad it's not a competition. But no, it's yeah. not. It's not. Of course not. <laughs> I mean, the processes um, are completely different. Yeah, exactly. Um, I understand that you had a successful conference in Potsdam. Yes. So how did you go about uh, planning and uh, running the first RSE conference in Germany. That was a thought that actually also emerged at that one conference in Manchester. So not only having some kind of community or entity, but also having that type of conference in Germany. That means we also started organizing that conference before we even had that association. That means we started maybe in autumn or fall of 2018, But then we had the problem, it was the first conference of that type in Germany. So we had no idea um, how large a community really was at that point. We knew how many people we had on the Slack channels and so on, but we had no idea how many people would actually come to a conference like that or would be able to come, would be able to pay and so on. We thought initially, well, 200 people, that sounds like a lot of people. Let's go with that. So we planned for maybe 100, 120 to be sustaining in the sense that we wouldn't have to pay anything extra. And uh, we looked for a location and we found a really, really nice location uh, in Potsdam on top of a, a hill, the Telegrafenberg, essentially in the middle of the, if, in the middle of woods. There are research institutes there. It was three days in summer. It was hot. It was really, really nice. We only had that limitation that we could only host 200 people there because of regulations. But, you know, it was the first conference. We had no idea. We hoped to have 100 people. And within two weeks after opening registration, we had 200 and we had to create a waiting list, something we even <laughs> we didn't consider before, right? And that was really um, something that people wanted to go to. So in the end, we had lots of volunteers helping with the conference because it was essentially run by the community for the community. So there was lots of social interaction. I mean, just imagine three days in a summer, long nights, late nights, right? So in that sense, it was really um, a successful conference. But now that it's kind of established or you actually did the first steps, how do you go from there? Um, what, what is your plan for the future? Um, for RSEs in Germany? It's not really recognized or established yet, I think. We are starting to go there. Yes, we have an entity, but you still have, you don't really have that um, recognition in universities and institutes like you should have, I think. And then if you ask how we should go from there, I think we should recognize that there's a really wide spectrum of RSEs. There's not a single kind of person you can think of if you think of an RSE. So you have some that are really close to research. Those are going to be funded also in the future by research positions, I think. And you need them. You have a lot of them. That is the type of researcher that is also an RSE. I'm probably more in that kind of corner, right? But you also have RSEs that are really close to service. So they are really interested in research, yes, but uh, not so much uh, in doing it themselves, but in helping others to do research. 
And then you could imagine those being funded by, let's say, university or research institutes centrally. So you have maybe a group of RSEs that are essentially serving a whole university. And then you can say, okay, maybe for three months, I help that group. And for a half a year, I help the other group. And you also have a lot of people just in between. The, the recognition of the role, I think that's a point that I stumbled across a few times when I talk to people in different countries, in fact, in different universities, to get that recognition. And sometimes you find that the definition of roles is sometimes quite rigid. And so it's very difficult to actually break that up and say, well, we want to create a new role that is kind of sits between the categories we have at the moment. Is that something that you encounter in Germany as well? Yes, because those those groups of essentially the service-based RSEs, um, they don't really exist at the moment, or not in a lot of places at least. Um, so you see groups like that um, being formed at the moment at a, quite a few places. So I think there's a trend that you have more and more of these. I think that's only one part, one side of a coin. You need those groups and you need funding, essentially. What you also need um, for essentially all RSEs is that you get recognition for their work. That is important for the service space, although I think their funding is the main problem, but it's really more important for the research, more research-oriented RSEs, because their citations or essentially recognition is what they work for and what they need for their future careers. That involves things like getting recognition in, let's say, professorship applications for work on software, maybe that drives whole communities, for instance, um, that that should get at least as much recognition as one or the other paper. So that's something that, that has to change, but it's also something that I think will only slowly change. There are two areas that I would like to drill down a little bit deeper. So the first one is the funding. So could you give any examples in Germany where there have been central RSE service departments or service groups being founded? Which universities are we talking about? Do you have an oversight of how many there are at the moment? We have a kind of unofficial list of people that spoke up and said, yes, we have an RSE group here. So that is about 20 at the moment. Um, I'm pretty sure there must be more than that. And I know that a few of them are really new and know from one in Heidelberg. And I know that one group that is at the moment essentially formed in Jena. So there are groups that are forming as of now. Couldn't tell you all of them now, but um, what we do at the moment really is to have a survey among these groups to essentially get to know them a little better, but also to help them get connected. That's something that you don't have at the moment in Germany. All these groups and all the people that I've spoken to from these groups um, are essentially doing that on their own. They are not really connected. There's no rec regular meeting or something. So um, I think it would be really helpful to First of all, have some meetings from time to time to just speak about the problems you face, having a group like that in, inside a university or research institute, and also to um, just see what's out there, to be able to say, okay, um, let's do it like that group, which had good experiences with whatever ticketing system or maybe how to speak to your upper administration, how to get money, um, how to have people stay inside the group and not um, have brain drain essentially to industry most of the time. Because you mentioned Jena, um, there's one in process of being set up. How did they go about it? How did they convince people that it's necessary and uh, secure the funding? Is there a tip that you could give people who are in similar positions? 
I don't think there's a secret chip of something like that. So in Jena, I think it was just the luck of having um, some people with the right arguments in higher positions already. So they've been able to essentially convince um, upper administration to create something like that. But I think you will see that more and more, first of all, because you have more bigger universities, universities forming those groups. So you have the argument of look at that large university. They did that. They have good experiences of that. Um, we should probably have a similar thing. That was a bit different a few years ago when almost nothing in that direction existed already. You can also point to the UK, of course. I mean, they are really successful with that. Um, the second thing is that um, at the moment you see a lot of um, groups also formed around um, something in Germany called the NFDI, which is the National Data Research Data Infrastructure. You will see in a lot of groups or a lot of universities that you have positions available concerning um, research data management. And of course, that is close to research. And of course, that's close to software also. I think it, it gets easier with time. That is, I think, the important essence of this, from building a strong community and then sort of setting precedents to have examples that you can then use as a highlight, as a success story, basically. That is kind of the route. Yes. What I'm understanding now is that this is sort of a similar route that you've taken in Germany. So you started off with a community building aspect and then went out to see how can we get to, to the recognition from there. The other aspect I'm quite interested in is the recognition from the research side. And the reason why I'm interested in this, because at the moment, uh, as you probably know, being involved in research yourself, is that a lot of that recognition is driven by publication in terms of articles and being cited. How could software enter into this? Is there a different way of recognizing software in the citations or linking them to papers? Um, do you have any ideas in that respect? Yes, yeah, so there are different possibilities how to try that. And essentially, people try all of the ones they can find. I mean, the most obvious one is to make software citable. And people are working on that, and there are really great ideas about that and great papers about that. One of the problems with that is that one citation isn't as good as another citation. So if you really go into um, job interviews, especially for um, professorships, then you will quickly find that you may have 50 citations, but only 10 of them are really counting. The other 40 are, well, on lower-tier journals. And if it's on software, it's nice, but it's still probably not on, in the upper tier. That's one route, essentially, to have software citable and uh, to make that count somewhat. Um, the other thing is that you can essentially only emphasize again and again how important your contribution to software was to whatever field of research you are in to make sure that you have people standing up and saying, okay, uh, without the contribution of that person, this specific advance in research wouldn't have been possible. You get um, recognition, like even a Nobel Prize maybe for things like building up uh, large experimental setups and have some findings in research, for instance, gravitational waves, right? That's not really different from having a big software package um, that is then used to find something really extraordinary in science. It has to also come again in, in kind of examples. Essentially, all you do usually with citations is you try to measure impact on science, right? So you need to find another way to measure the impact your work has. How you do that, I don't know. I don't have a solution yet, and we are working on it. But again, I don't think that's a one that's one simple solution. Is one of the problems that we have perhaps too many solutions right now? How software could be cited? So you mentioned that there are several 
work going on? Does that need to be consolidated maybe? It, it might help, but the main problem still is even if you have one consolidated kind of software citation, the question is how much do, does that really count when you later want to advance your career? That's what most people are then interested in. Is there a change that actually needs to happen at the publication uh, level, i.e. sort of the journals? That no, I think that that change has to, has to happen within the committees that actually select candidates, right? So that has to happen within the heads of the existing chairs, essentially. One of the questions of the elephant in the room, of course, is uh, coronavirus and the impact it has on our works. How did that impact the work that you do, in particular, the work that you do in the RSE Association, negative well, or positive? <laughs> yeah, like probably everyone else who can, I'm essentially in home office and most of my colleagues are. What it means for a lot of us is we have now a lot more experience with audio and video live streaming or recording. And because lots of us are also teaching, we also have some experience now in doing that remotely. Which impact it has? Well, it's not so much a direct impact. There's some damage, of course, some indirect damage in a, in a sense that as RSE, you really live also on interaction. First of all, an interaction between, let's say, the computer science side and whatever science you are in. And that now, as all kinds of interaction, has a problem, right? You are not able to interact, so to freely interact as you have been before. Maybe before you shared an office, so you could talk to each other whenever you had a coffee or whatever, right? Lots of times, um, all the solutions just come because you talk, you happen to talk. That doesn't happen essentially at the moment, or not a lot. Or I see that the ICs have a problem there specifically. And you also have the problem that the group of RSEs cannot easily talk to each other anymore so much. So, for instance, um, the conference we wanted to have this year, that type of conference benefits a lot from the social interaction. I mean, yes, you have talks and so on, but you also have a lot of workshops. And there's intentionally a lot of free space to just discuss. One reason why we didn't have a virtual conference this year was that that type of interaction just is missing even in a, in a virtual environment. It's really hard to get that going. You see that a lot of these meetings that may be the big conference, but even the smaller, like say chapter-like regional meetings, they are just not happening at the moment. And that is really a problem for the community, I think. Are there any techniques or are there any advice that you can give how to mitigate that a little bit? Because I do understand and sympathize with the fact that personal contact and face-to-face -face interaction is still far more effective than you know, doing it all over Zoom, Teams, Slack, and yeah. all the other ones that you use. But I mean, we are where we are. And in order to keep, keep the communication somewhat going, are there any tips that you could give? Exactly. So that's what we are stuck with, essentially with virtual meetings. So essentially what we did is uh, come together as a group of RSE associations or at least communities. And uh, we only can do that virtual at the moment. So we created um, Source, which is a series of online events, mostly talks, but can also be workshops, tutorials that are connected to RSE. But also there you see it's really hard to do that virtually. It's really hard to get an open discussion or just free discussion going there. Thank you very much for your time, Frank. Uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast now, and there are usually two questions that I ask. The first one is, uh, let's imagine a point far ahead into the future, and if you were to look back to your professional life, what would you hope you have achieved by then? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That's also a difficult one. 
I could answer that in two parts. So one of them is um, if I look at what I did um, locally, so within the organization I'm at, it would really be nice to have an RSE recognized there a lot more and ideally to have an RSE group built up there that is recognized and established at that university. If I look beyond the local level, so maybe national, international, I would really like to continue to see the active community RSEs, to have the yearly conference, have that exchange, have also that international connection between groups. I mean, that is slowly building up at the moment. So that's something we will very likely have. And that essentially is necessary to slowly change the recognition that software contributions to science should get. And finally, what do you like to do in your spare time if you have any left? What I usually answer to that is, well, I have four kids in a house. What's spare time? Um, <laughs> well, but there's I've, no spare time left then, is there? Yeah, well, of course, there is. Uh, you've got to have some spare time. So what I do when I can do it is uh, some martial arts. At the moment, that's also on hold due to Corona, but usually, yes. Um, other than that, I like to tinker with all kinds of things like Raspberry Pis, attaching some sensors, a camera, put that on top of a buggy chassis so you can essentially drive your Raspberry Pi around, connecting all that kinds of stuff, getting some old hardware out of the basement, rescuing all my old floppies from 30, 40 years ago. Floppy disks, that is, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> well, I think we have the generation, but we still remember what they are. Yes, I had to <laughs> clarify that, I guess, today. I find Raspberry Pi quite interesting. Yeah, they're a perfect toy for dads. Yeah, I, I guess they're probably the kids love them too. Thank you very much, Frank, for your time and uh, for the great conversation and uh, all the best for the future. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it will be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcast from. And with that, goodbye. <laughs>